Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Mental Sweet Spot podcast. To find mental toughness, then teach them how. I'm Melanie Rushing and I'll be joined shortly by my business partner, Alicia Smith, as we bring you another interview. Today's guest is a former head college softball coach who is now a licensed mental health care professional, certified sports psychology consultant, and private softball instructor, helping countless student athletes and coaches. She stepped down as the head coach at Bridgewater State University in 2017 to pursue her doctorate in sport and performance psychology. As a head coach, she took the team to Super Regionals and developed her player's mental game with the sports psych skills she'd learned. She currently runs a training facility, Diamond Fast Pitch, where she gives pitching lessons and applies mental skills with her athletes. She also teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses at the university and consults with athletes in all sports, but especially softball. She also works as a consultant with teams, including the Chicago Bandits. She implements team-building activities to strengthen the bond within the team and reflective activities to help the players increase their motivation. She works with individuals on a wide variety of issues like working their way through slumps, improving confidence, and using positive self-talk. In this episode, we discuss learning what mental toughness really is and what it isn't, getting to know why players do the things they do, helping players buy into mental skills by explaining why, accidental ways we as coaches take the fun out of softball, investing in your players as people first, and how to coach today's player. For today's bonus, we were inspired by Chrissy's team building icebreakers, so we created a team building activity to help your girls get to know each other better and get to know you as coaches too. It's called Teammate Bingo. This episode is brought to you by the Mental Game Eval. If you've heard of mental toughness but don't know exactly how to explain it or how to show your girls what it looks like on the field, check out our eval. We define mental toughness with the seven C's, which are based on the top performers in the world. Your girls can now have a clear idea how they rate in the seven C's with this quick 10-minute eval. To check it out, head to mentalsweetspot.com forward slash eval. Now, without further ado, we are so excited to share the stories and strategies of Chrissy Semler. Welcome, Chrissy. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate you um, taking the time with us today. So, Chrissy, one of the first questions we always ask our guests is, is how did you first learn about mental toughness? Um, I would say that I first learned about it as a player. Um, I remember getting drilled actually in the face playing third base uh, for the days of face masks, which I'm all for, uh, by the way. And I remember uh, running in for uh, what I thought was going to be a bunt and she ended up, you know, pulling back and hitting a um, line drive at my face. And I picked the ball up and threw the girl out at first before realizing the trauma to, to my face. And I remember my coach coming over to me and saying, just suck on your lips. So it stops bleeding. You had your mouth guard in. So you, you still have teeth. Like if you're the most mentally tough player we have. You'll be fine. You're just going to, you're going to stay in. We'll change your shirt, you know, so you're not bleeding and, you don't have blood on your uniform and we'll be good to go. And um, that's what I believed mental toughness was for many years. I thought it meant anytime I'm in pain, you just suck it up as much as you can, no matter what, and you keep playing through it. And I suffered a lot of injuries because of that, which is not what mental toughness is at all. So now I know what it means. <laughs> How did you get down the path of discovering kind of what it actually was? It wasn't until actually I was in college and started taking psychology classes. So it wasn't until many years later. And I started learning more about sports psychology and understanding. And it wasn't until I actually read the definition of understanding. It's, you know, having the natural develop psychological edge enables you to, to cope better than your opponents with demand. So things like getting yourself out of bed when you don't want to get out of bed, um, 
you know, when the crowd's cheering loudly, you're able to overcome that through attention and focus and being consistent, you know, um, and remaining determined, focused, confident, those types of things under pressure. So it took, um, it wasn't until I started reading about it that I understood really what it was and tried to implement it, you know, from a coaching standpoint as well. I'd like to go back to specifically your experiences with injury Mm -hmm. and before you got, I guess, the knowledge of all the tools that come with sports psychology and mental toughness, what were some of the things that you did to get through it that you think could have been even better with actual sports psychology? Um, for, well, for playing through injury, I, I don't support that. I support playing through being uncomfortable. And that was something I, I was kind of good at that. If it were raining, I didn't let it impact my mental game. I focused on my job of what I needed to get done. I didn't think, well, it's a bad day out or it's cold or it's too hot because I'd always say to myself, well, it's hot for everybody. It's cold for everybody. So my condition isn't greater than somebody else's. Um, I'd also use use scenarios. I'd train under worst case scenarios. So I'd go train when it was really hot. I'd go train when it was really cold to prepare myself. And I just kind of got comfortable with suffering, you know, and I say in a healthy way, as in if it's older, those types of things of I live by the motto, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's one of the, the biggest things I did. I always train that way so that in competition, I didn't let things get to me as much. And the good thing about that is it's, I had a kind of an edge that I had that as a player, but there's, it can be trained as well. It's not something that you either have or you don't have. Um, But I think that if I had the sports psychology knowledge I have now, I think it would have helped me not be so much of a perfectionist on some tasks. I think it would have um, allowed me to maybe know when to walk away from situations or allow myself, my body to heal, you know, (laughs) where uh, sometimes we see that as like, oh, you just have to keep pushing and that's mental toughness. But sometimes mental toughness is admitting defeat and saying that, you know what, I'm really hurt and I can't pitch today because it's not good for me. And that takes mental toughness as well. Absolutely agree. When you started transitioning into a coaching career, you obviously started to have a lot of this background and knowledge before you started coaching. So Mm -hmm. what do you think um, when you first started coaching and and through your career, did your players struggle with the most? Um, Well, when I first started coaching, I don't, at the time I had my bachelor's in psych and I started uh, my master's in clinical psych. So I didn't dive too hard into sports psychology yet, but I had an interest in it. So I'd research stuff and try to implement things the best that I could. But I think a lot of the mistakes I made coaching is that I simply did what I was taught for many years. And I just figured you're just hard on your players and they end up being mentally tough. And I had some of the same, you know, views a lot of coaches I think have when they first start out. And you're trying to find that balance of you want to be respected, but at the same time, you want the players to, you know, enjoy playing for you and and that kind of stuff. So I had players that struggled with not playing to their potential. I had players that they were lacking confidence and I didn't really know what to do with it at first. And um, an example of that, when I was coaching college, um, I had a player who was amazing fast. She had so much potential. And as an outfielder, she would often let balls drop that I'm like, she can get to that. Why is she letting that ball drop? This is so frustrating to me. And after understanding her a little bit better, I realized that she needed me to trust in her as a player and understand her as an individual for her to perform at her potential. 
So initially I was viewing the situation as she was lazy or she wasn't trying very hard for whatever reason, but it was actually because she cared too much and didn't want to make a mistake, had fear of failure, perfectionism, um, all kinds of other things that I understood as my career went on. And once I understood those pieces, I was able to, to help her in some ways. And she performed incredible for a while after that. I love like, hearing those stories. Yeah. Um, what do you think were some examples of like the mini breakthroughs you see when you start to like get through to a kid and get her to see that perfectionism is actually hurting her more than helping? Because I was that kid too. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> you can rationalize like, well, I'm just being hard on myself. I just have high expectations. Well, actually, <laughs> you're self-handicapping. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hurting yourself. And I often see this when I'm working with pitchers because you have to be a bit of a perfectionist to be successful at pitching. You have to be willing to drill, you know, over and over and over again of these mundane tasks to just achieve a small speed gain or whatever it may be. And one of the greatest things that I try to work on is I teach pitchers to have speed prior to control. And that's really hard for some pitchers when I get them when they're a little bit older and they've had a different method, you know, or a different philosophy of of learning and they're trying so hard to be perfect and just throw the ball over the plate. And I start having them focus on just mechanics and taking, you know, the, uh, the catcher out of the equation. So they can't aim and they have, it's hard sometimes to get them to trust. But once they realize that the perfectionism is actually holding them back and here's how you can get better, they, they start to see it and believe into it. So part of it is just getting them to buy into the process, which can be a, a huge challenge. What type of things do you do to help them buy into that process? Because that's something that we talk a lot about. So, you yep. know, do you, what, do, what do you do with them? One of my jobs is working in retail and I had to sell, I actually sold shoes. <laughs> and so I have a sales background and I always say the first thing I do is sell to them why. I think that this gener younger generation, especially like younger generations want to understand the why behind everything. And I was part of that too. Um, and once you explain to them like, why this is a problem, um, what, you know, you can do to change that, um, what that process looks like and what their end result could be if they're willing to let go. I find that they're willing to buy into that and really understanding and breaking down each step. So depending on what the problem is, if it's a pitcher that's struggling with perfectionism, having them do an exercise where they're not able to rely on a catcher. So they're throwing it a tarp or they're throwing it something where they, they can't see if they're throwing a strike or not. And over time, when we bring them back to the catcher, you find that they do throw strikes and they're faster. Um, so usually they want some proof and that can be the, you know, the challenge. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mind explaining the process uh, throughout. I think that's one of the hardest things is the, is the buy-in because yep. sometimes you'll have kids that try something that you're trying to work with them on and it doesn't work the first time. So they yeah. or give up on it. And, and yeah. I think it's this long-term investment. Um, yep. this, and they just, I don't think they necessarily see um, the end goal because no. they, and they want, they, they just want that instant gratification sometimes. And I think that delayed gratification, you know, they talk a lot about that as well is, is harder. <laughs> For those kids sometimes to to get through and if you think about it their their lives today are set up for instant gratification so it's almost an unrealistic expectation for us to assume that they can get that concept right away because in the age of you know you want to know something you can google it you whatever you want you have at your fingertips everything they get everything so much faster so it's really hard when you tell them hey this is some tedious 
boring task that you're going to have to work on over and over and over again to be the best. And another way to kind of show them too is to show them training regimens of people who are successful because you can see that the people, there's no Olympian that's going to tell you, oh, I barely train. Um, I maybe run a week and that's about it. And I have an Olympic gold medal, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you talk to any elite softball player, they're not going to say, oh, I barely practice. They're going to tell you that they do thousands and thousands of reps off a tee and it's boring and it's tough. And they struggle with it, but that's what you have to do to get better. Or they work on their mental game and they, they do all kinds of mental skills training. And um, people talk about how they, they don't pick up a ball for months sometimes and just focus on the mental skills aspect of the game. And I think that since mental skills are not often talked about mainstream still, a lot of people do not realize how much time and effort goes into mental training at the elite level because it's not seen at the younger levels like as, as greatly. Mm-hmm. What have you found some of the most effective and helpful mental skills have been? Um, there's almost too many to... <laughs> <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> I know. There's like, it's really hard to answer because there's so many to list. Do you have a specific scenario or situation maybe? Uh, bouncing back from failure, we get a, a lot of. Yes. Um, bouncing back from failure, uh, there's a lot of different strategies that are that can be used to to cope with failure. And one of them is... Oftentimes, when kids do not have other experiences of failure, the first experience of failure they have in a a sport can be catastrophic. And it also has to do with the family situation where how much emphasis and stress is placed on the sport. So oftentimes when people come to me for consultation for a child, um, oftentimes it's the family system that's causing the child to not come back from failure because they see their, they hear their parents talking about the amount of money invested in a sport and how much time they spend and how much they drive them here and there. So then to that 10 year, even a 10 year old child, they feel that pressure every time they're up to bat and parents mean well, they create opportunities for their children because they love them and they want them to succeed. But oftentimes they don't recognize the pressure the kid feels. So when they do fail, they have a really hard time coming back from that because it's multifaceted. Um, for some kids, if the family is supportive and the child's a perfectionist and they, it's one of those kids where you don't know where it came from, um, then it can be a situation where you're using visualization to reframe what's going on um, or you're teaching the kid to write about their feelings or other skills that might help them through it. I like those. It's amazing to me hearing you talk about such young kids facing pressure and, you know, my nine-year-old plays soccer. Not softball, yep. but soccer. Yep. <laughs> That's okay. Of course. That's okay. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um, but she mentioned to me that she didn't know if she wanted to be trained to be a goalie because she was too worried about, she didn't want to be under pressure to allow a goal. Mm-hmm. And and I, I couldn't believe that came out of her mouth because yeah. I think it's hard for um, sometimes coaches to even realize that kids understand what that pre- what pressure is at that, at that young age and trying to give them the coping skills even then I think is is pretty, pretty important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Kids need to understand that, you know, failure is not an end all be all. And even if you win, it's temporary, you're going to experience failure at some point. And it's important to develop those coping mechanisms early on of understanding that, yeah, it's okay to be sad, but then we move on from it and we figure out how to be better or what else can we do? 
um, rather than taking too much time feeling sorry or feeling like you blew it. And just like I always say with softball, it doesn't where soccer it's tough because it feels like it comes down to that one play. The goalie missed the ball. And I can see why kids would be scared to take on that pressure. But with softball, even I say when it's, who cares if the left fielder dropped a ball, that's not what lost the game, even though it appears that way. Think of all the missed opportunities up till that point. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. So, but kids have a hard time seeing it that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talked on the phone before and you mentioned how, how much um, traveling you do, how many different, you know, speaking engagements you do. So what is, what is your favorite part about that? Um, I love meeting all types of people and, you know, just seeing all these people that are very passionate for the sport, for whatever sport it might be. But I see a lot of softball people and I love being able to share the information that I have, hoping that it helps a family, it helps a child and makes sport just an enjoyable thing for ultimately the kids because it should be enjoyable. The kids should be having a good time. They should, it's something they should look forward to. It's something that should give them confidence and skills and teamwork and all kinds of other valuable lessons. Um, and that's what I hope the message I hope people understand is what, what sport is all about. I love that in all your travels, what do you see comes up most for <laughs> the things we sometimes accidentally do that make it not fun? Yeah, there's, um, there's so many that stand out, but when I, <laughs> I was actually in Michigan, uh, your way, not, um, <laughs> several months ago and I was speaking about it's it's common knowledge now about everybody talks about like leave your kid alone during the car ride home and people are still you know talking to their kids on the car ride home using it as an opportunity to break down the game talk about all the things the child did wrong and I try to explain to people that communication is twofold there has to be a message and there has to be a receiver so if the, the person is not in an emotional state to receive the message there's no point in relaying the message. So if your child is already processing their feelings about losing a game, they're not open to hearing about all the things they did wrong. They already feel bad about that. And I was explaining this and a 10 year old girl sitting in the front row turns around and points to the back of the room and says, see, see that guy back there? That's, that's the dad. You see him? He's, he's the, he has the red hat on back there. And we make sure that he hears this because I say this to him all the time and he never listens to me. Like that's all he does. And this man is turning as red as his dad. And I'm like, okay, I think he, he understands. And she's like, no, he doesn't. And I feel this big. I feel so small when he says this and he keeps going and going and going, blah, blah, blah. And she's you know, going on and on. And this man is just like, so, so humiliated. And a couple about that on the way home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, car ride home today is not going to go very well. But um, several fathers came up to me and they thanked me. And a few of them actually had tears in their eyes uh, when they talked to me. And, and that's what surprises me, too, is how many parents have broke down and become emotional, not realizing what they're doing. Because they all do it meaning well, figuring if I just create all these opportunities for my child and I do everything that I can, I give them lessons, I, you know, take them places, I give them feedback, they're going to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And I always tell parents, like, I'm not shaming you. I know that you love your child and you're doing the best you can with what you have, with what you understand. And I think that, um, you know, pa when parents recognize like, oh my God, that's what I've been doing. I they feel terrible. And that's a good parent when they recognize that and they feel, you know, 
they because no one ever wants to harm like hurt their child and when you hear that you're the problem or you're the person that's holding your child back emotionally that's a hard thing to hear as a parent and um he they were good sports you know hearing uh hearing that information but and i've had several several scenarios like that <laughs> but that one in particular really stood out you know we we direct a lot of our you know advice and and helping coaches you know mm-hmm. help their kids what type of advice would you give coaches listening to this podcast and what they could do to help with their kids in implementing mental toughness? I think that first understanding what mental toughness actually is, is really important because a lot of people believe that if they just, you know, have players run and run and run until they're throwing up or do all kinds of other things like that, it's it's going to make their players mentally tough. But it, it's oftentimes the opposite of what you think as a coach. It's that your players first need to be in an environment where they do not fear failure. They understand that you care about them as an individual and you're invested in them as people and not just as a player and that they feel confident in their connection with you. And that is the kind of foundation of creating a mentally tough environment. Then next you can do things like have them, you know, practice, like run a tough practice and praise them, make sure that you're giving them, lots of positive feedback so they understand that, um, you know, where where they stand to you. Uh, coaches oftentimes do not communicate enough with their players, and I was definitely guilty of that when I first started coaching. Another example of an outfielder, she was 22 years old at the time. She dropped a routine pop fly, which in my head I thought, okay, she knows what she did wrong, right? She's 22. She dropped it, you know, a pop fly. I don't need to say anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so she... <laughs> She came into the dugout. I didn't say anything. I'm just focused on the game, you know, game management, whatnot. A few innings later, she comes up to me and is like, I know you're still upset with me. I'm sorry I disappointed you. I, I don't know why I did that. And I, I was like, whoa, whoa. Aww. <laughs> you know, and I was like, hang on a second. Um, what do you mean? I was like, well, what happened? In the, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I just misjudged it. I dropped it. I go, okay, what do you need to do to, to correct that? She's like, next time I'll watch it in all the way. I won't think about the throw before I'm catching it. I'm like, okay, great. We're good. Okay. I was like, we're all right. <laughs> and I realized like, wow, um, I broke down the basically, you know, my, I broke down my own player by not, by not saying anything. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> like I crushed her mental toughness. I cr- you know, where if I just told her we're okay, she'd be able to recover from that era, it would have been fine. So I think that a lot of those things like constant communication, they need to know how you feel, what's going on. Um, That helps players with mental toughness, because then they're not worrying about their relationship with you, they're secure about that, then they can focus on whatever the task is at hand. So and I could go on for days about all the mistakes I learned along the way. That I wish, you know, and you go, man, I wish I had the knowledge that I have now. And that's why I try to give as much as I can to other coaches so that hopefully they can prevent at least a couple of the mistakes that I made. And, you know, and I say you, you can't be everything to everybody. And it's really tough as a coach because you have a lot of different responsibilities. The players need you emotionally. They need, you know, you have to plan practice physically. There's a lot that goes into coaching and coaches are definitely underappreciated, over-criticized and that's tough. Um, but as long as you're doing the best that you can and keeping the best interests of the players in mind, that's, that's what your focus should be. Mm-hmm. 
I've come across this multiple times in my career, talking with other coaches. You talk about getting to know the players better as people. Mm -hmm. And though it's a pretty straightforward concept, I find that the application is sometimes (laughs) tricky. Um, Especially like you said, we initially coached the way we were coached. And yep. usually that was not about relationship building. No. Um, so what does that mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so what are some tips you have for coaches to help build those relationships? If time, if it's possible, I know this can be time consuming, but having one-on-one meetings with players is a great way to get to know them. And you have a list of questions you want to ask or something like that. You can also have um, questionnaires that you make up to get like about the player outside of softball, a little bit about softball, but also things outside and understanding what their goals are, what they, how they feel about the sport, what other things that they do, something interesting about themselves. And even if you can give them just a few minutes here and there, telling them some feedback about how they're doing uh, is a great way to connect with them. So letting them know like, Hey, I really noticed that you hustled in practice today. And I just want you to know, I appreciate that. And it can be hard if you were not raised that way and you didn't have coaches that were like that because I know I kind of resisted that communication just a little bit at first because I thought they should know if they're hustling or not. Like they should know why am I why am I praising everything that they do? But I realized that if I want to be a better coach, I have to evolve. It's not about whether I agree or disagree with how today's player is compared to 20 years ago, because that's in the past. It doesn't matter. If you're living in the past, you're not going to be the best coach you can be. If you look at coaches like Patty Asso, um, she completely changed the way that she coaches. And she is big on praise, support, warm, loving environment. And she has had a great deal of success. And I can name a ton of other coaches that have evolved their coaching style and they are incredibly successful. The ones who are stuck and think like, if I just am as hard on them as possible, then they're going to respond. That's not how today's player works. They're just not going to perform their best for you. Yeah, definitely. We've had a lot of conversations with other coaches too about generational differences. Yes. You know, I've been coaching long enough to see a huge swing. In, in oh, that. yeah. And you mentioned even not only from how they learn, but mm-hmm. how um, even the instant gratification we talked about yes. earlier. So that's definitely the adaptation piece from a coach's standpoint. You have to constantly not only learn about and grow, but also just the generational differences and yes. use that to your advantage, you know, because yep. I hear all oh, this generation today. I hear that a lot out yep. of frustration, but I think it's just because we need to take time to understand it. Exactly. And everybody has felt that way about the the prior generation it's happened throughout history like no one you know Mm -hmm. it's like whether you're a baby boomer or you're a generation z or x or millennial it's like everybody has felt that way about how different the previous generation is it's because time has changed like things do not remain the same and the people who are successful the ones that evolve and, and adapt and the people who try to stay the same are the ones that players end up not wanting to play for them or they're not motivated to do well you know they're they're not motivated to be the best they can be if they're playing for somebody they feel like doesn't care about them Mm -hmm. and and just like male and female athletes female athletes rate one of the highest reasons for playing sports is friendship and if they don't feel a sense of cohesiveness with their teammates as well they're not going to perform to their best so understanding like the female athlete, the team cohesion, all those aspects are really going to help give a coach an advantage over people who don't understand those concepts. Mm -hmm. Do you work at all with um, 
other athletes when talking about team aspects or team building? Yeah, I do a lot of team building stuff. I do a lot of team activities and um, it's interesting because I do very different activities with, with women's teams than I do with men's teams. And I've actually tried different activities like using a typical women's one with a male's team, you know, <laughs> male mm-hmm. team member. And it, uh, it's funny because I try to invent some and I'll, I'll come up with a new team bonding thing. And I'm like, well, that was terrible. Let me try, <laughs> you know, let me try <laughs> trial and error. Yeah, this works really well with women. This works terrible with men. Um, like I've, I've had a lot where when I work with female teams and we do some team building stuff, any of the activities that involve like expressing the way they feel about each other, whether it be writing stuff down or on the board, and almost every team member ends up breaking down crying and they, and they all <laughs> cry together. <laughs> I try to do the same activity with like a male team. They're laughing and throwing stuff at each other, <laughs> you know, because it's not just as important of a concept. It is important, but it's a different level. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's one example of something that you've worked with female teams or athletes that has been successful as far as team building is concerned? Um, one of my favorite team building activities to use, and there's a lot of different modifications or versions of it is when you do something where you have all the players either you use something with like the player's name and then you have people go around and either put sticky notes on their name like on a board or on a piece of paper and you have them write like positive affirmations about them or something that they admire and you give it to the person and then they are able to go over it and I, I almost every time I do that people end up breaking down crying, seeing what every, what, uh, all this, it's very powerful to see what you mean to a team, you know, what you mean to your teammates. And it can be a a great activity. It's something to do later in the season. That's a kind of team bonding, like at the halfway point where start stuff starts to get rocky and, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the storming part. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Storming. Yep. You understand. (laughs) So it's a great storming activity for sure. Um, informing activities can be anything that has to do with just getting to know each other, icebreakers, stuff like that. They icebreakers, people absolutely hate when they're in classrooms. I have students say that all the time, mm-hmm. but usually for teams, they don't mind icebreaking activities as much. Um, two truths and a lie is one of my favorite ones to do also. Yes, we just, yeah. we just did that one. On just Friday. did that. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a fun one. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to be like, whoa, I can't tell which one's the lie. That's impressive or scary. Exactly. Yeah, or scary, exactly. Then you're going, all right, I got to keep an eye on that one over there. Like she, She's sure. real good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. That's a good one, too. Do you, do you have anything else that you would like to add that we did not cover? Um, I think that one thing to keep in mind for coaches is that the mental game is often something that nobody teaches. It's something that an emphasis is not placed on, but oftentimes coaches have expectations that players should just do things. Like if you're coaching, you cannot expect your players to do something that they haven't been taught. It Like if you tell your player to relax, if you haven't taught them how to relax, you can't expect them to know what that word means. <laughs> and I see that all the time. And I think, I think it's like a personal topic for me too, because as a pitcher, when I'd have parents scream or coaches or whoever, they meant well, but they'd, like you just need to relax or just throw strikes you know (laughs) just throw strikes 
And I'd be your like, tone alone doesn't make me want to relax. Right. I'm like, your tone is anxiety provoking, number one. Like, number two, I didn't forget the object of the game. I know I'm supposed to throw strikes. That's not the problem right now. So telling me, being Captain Obvious is not helping me in any way, shape, or form. Um, and also things like yelling relax at somebody does, does not help them relax. And I always say to uh, a lot of the male coaches, I say, are you married, you know? And they can usually relate to, I say, okay, if you have a wife and you tell her to relax, how does that go? <laughs> how does that work for you? Does that, does that work? I go, okay. So that nobody in the history of ever has relaxed, you know, <laughs> when you relax. Oh, you're right. <laughs> right. I no, Yeah. Did you, anybody ever say, yeah. Or, or your spouse doesn't have to be husband, wife, anybody like your spouse and you're getting in an argument they say, relax, you know, um, and relax is almost an anxiety provoking word for most people. So something like, Hey, why don't you just take a deep breath? Okay. Ready? Let's breathe. You know, uh, that's a better visit to the pitcher's mound than saying, Hey, you need to relax and throw strikes. Okay. You know, <laughs> just get it together. <laughs> we laugh, but it happens. It happens all the time. <laughs> and sometimes when you're coaching, you just don't know what to say. Right. And I've been there where I'm like, what what do I say? And then I found that when I'd go out to the mound and have talks about meaningless stuff, it was more successful than when I went out there going, all right, this is the plan. You know, uh -huh. I've actually gone out to the mound before and told a joke because I, had, okay. I was in that same boat where I literally did not know what to say. I yep. knew they needed to be a little more calm and it yep. was a stressful situation. And I, I, the whole walk from the dugout to the mound, I'm like, you got to think of something, you know, inspirational yes. and motivational. Yeah. And yeah. the only thing that came out of my mouth was a joke. And I think for the first three seconds, they looked at me like, you can't be serious. Oh. And then they started laughing. And then, yeah, like, really, coach, like right now in this moment, you're going to tell a joke? I'm like, yeah, why not? Yep. <laughs> Sometimes I say those are the golden moments. It's like, when you start, when you're trying to think of something so profound and something that is just going to inspire them and make a difference, it ends up being those types of moments that are more impactful because they see it as like, oh, okay, she's not mad at me and we're good. So I can take a deep breath and relax. Um, and then actually relax. Actually, <laughs> um, I, well, so with my sports psychology training, as I was coaching, I kept trying to implement more stuff. And one of the things I was trying to implement a few years ago, uh, coaching college was teaching them about optimal arousal, which mm -hmm. of course, at first they're like laughing about it and going, what are you talking about? Like, what, <laughs> what are you trying to teach us? I'm like, this is a real thing, real science, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, attention. and it ended up like turning, they all thought it was funny. So when I would say, um, <laughs> I, they'd, they'd be going to the batter's box and I'd say like, Hey, OA, like optimal, you know, optimal arousal. <laughs> and they'd be like, Oh yeah, ready to go right now. And they'd laugh and it kind of like reduced tension for people. So it didn't work out in the way I originally intended that I was all, all scientific with it and stuff like that. And they, they interpreted their own way and it ended up working out fine. <laughs> so it was ultimately successful because you got them to relax. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> the goal worked. So whatever. And it became this like joke. Everyone laughed at all season long. I was like, oh my God. This is not yeah. Those are, those are the moments of, as a coach, actually, I treasure the most are those little like yep. inside jokes. And, and when they just start laughing and, and, you know, those, when the season ends, those are actually the things I, I miss. They are. Every day is that energy that those silly things. Yep. They actually had a sand dollar painted that said optimal arousal with the softball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Please <laughs> tell me you're okay. putting a shadow box above your desk. I, it's on my shelf. Yeah, I still have it. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. That's great. We we can't thank you enough. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or talk about? Um, I don't think so. Hopefully, I said something <laughs> something yeah, worthwhile. <laughs> The whole thing about the relax part is my favorite because I think that's how I think I started this whole journey. It's like mm-hmm. I kept saying that and hearing people say that, but I never gave them the tools. It's the same yeah. thing when you're trying to teach kids to lead, be leaders. Well, if right. they don't be know how right. or you don't give them the yeah. or yeah, show them the way, they're not going to understand how. So um, this was great. I think it's it's we really appreciate you taking the time to share, um, especially for our coaches, you know. I think uh, it's great what you two are doing, and I can tell you're you definitely match my uh, passion. <laughs> we agree. We, we thought so as well. And that's a wrap. Be sure to grab your free teammate bingo PDF at mentalsweetspot.com forward slash episode twenty one. When you sign up for our list, you'll get this handout and our weekly email with info about our latest episode, this episode's bonus document, and our recommended resource of the week. All of which you can implement with your team immediately. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd truly appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes or on our site at mentalsweetspot.com forward slash reviews. Also, let us know on social media what you've learned and how you've implemented these tactics with your players. We're at Mental Sweet Spot on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hope to talk to you all soon. See you next week for another episode.